excited about what God is going to show us today. We've got some good things. Uh, we've been in this series of First Peter really for a long time. Some of you are probably like way too long. Um, but anyways, uh, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about the past few days, like if you come with the mindset that I can't wait for Pastor Brian to take us through First Peter and be done with it, then I think you're just going to be disappoint- disappointed every single week. You're going to be like, ah, oh, man, I thought we were going to finish this week. Nope. But I think at the end of the day, if you come with this mindset of like, I want to hear from God. I want to hear what God has to speak to us today, this week, through the scripture, through people like Peter and whatnot. Um, I promise you, you will come every single week and God will meet you right where you're at. You will receive manna from the hand of God that will bless you, encourage you, strengthen you, and give you everything that you need for that week, if not for whatever, however length of time God's going to give it to you for. Um, with that being said, what I want to do right now is I'm going to switch into the book of First Peter chapter 4. We're going to read verses th- 7 through 11. Uh, we have been in this little vicinity here uh, for a little bit of time, and we had some disruptions. One of them was not good disruptions. We had Pentecost Sunday last week. We looked at Pentecost and what that meant. Before that, we had our baptism, things of that nature. So uh, we're jumping back into this, and we will be making our way through the end of this chapter, and then we'll finish up uh, the book of Peter, and then we'll move on to something else, some other book. But with that being said, I want to read verses uh, 7 through 11 of chapter 4. It says this, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you might pray. Above all, love one another deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. God has given each one of you a gift uh, from his variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have a gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself is speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do this with the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray and then we will jump in. So Jesus, right now we come to you. We ask you that you would open our hearts, our minds, our imagination, and our thoughts. Renew us, refresh us, restore us, God, to all that you want us to be. So that as we jump back into this week, Lord, that we would enter into the strength that you have supplied for us. And that we would be all the people that you intend for us to be. God, meet every single need as you know in this room the way that only you alone can do. God, you, there are things that only you know that only you are able to touch and heal and bring transformation. So God, do that this morning. We come in this morning expecting you to do what only you alone can do, which is transform, reshape our hearts. So we entrust it all in your hands and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? So real quick, again, uh, if you are new, uh, in short, Peter's writing to a community of followers of Jesus that are scattered throughout the ancient Roman world, and he's trying to encourage them so that they would live faithful lives devoted to Jesus without compromising their values and their ideology and their understanding of who Jesus is or their identity to basically sell out, become like the culture, or uh, conversely, to run from the culture and be kind of anti-cultural doomsday preppers like he's he doesn't want them to be that he doesn't want them to kind of go from one extreme to the other he wants them to live in the culture while at the same time having a unique identity of followers of jesus uh and and be faithful to jesus in that context and what we have been looking at the past couple weeks in this little section here is he starts with this little segment where he says the end of all things is near and again if you were with us a few weeks ago i kind of unpacked that 
more fully. I'm not going to do that again today. But in short, the way that I had kind of leaned towards, I think, assuming what Peter's suggesting here, is that because Jesus rose again from the dead, Jesus launched a whole new way that will one day encompass all creation, not just planet Earth, but all the cosmos. Romans 8, if you want a footnote as to where to go dig deeper into what that looks like. I think what Peter's saying here is that because the end of all things, what are the all things? Again, the way I kind of leaned into this is the all things is the system of planet Earth, the way that human beings function, operate, that has to do with decay and ruin and death and deception. All of that, that he says, that system is got a timestamp. It will one day come to a conclusion, but the new system of Creation of hope, of power, of life, Holy Spirit energy is now come onto this planet, and you are part of that. That's what he's saying. Because the end of all things is near, and the new things has come, live in the moment right now, in the present, as we will one day live when Jesus transforms all things when he comes again. I think that's what he's suggesting here. So the, the big question that then arises, I think, in the minds of Christians how do we live? What does that look like? What tangible evidences does it actually look? What form, what shape should it take for Christians? Live, living in a culture that's hostile towards them. What does that look like? What form does that take? And these are questions that are really pertinent to them. Uh, if I were to put it another way, it's like, how should a follower of Jesus conduct themselves within a society that at minimum, the popular opinion is not high towards them. And at worst, the government despises them. Does that resonate with anybody? It should. It's no different. It's been like this for the past 2,000 years. And Peter's writing to these Christians saying, look, I get it. Culture does not like you. It's not, it's not welcoming and warm to you and to your way of lifestyle and your way, how, way that you think. And not only that, but the the government doesn't care about you. In fact, the government is actually, at some point within the church's history, is going to be subverting Christians with, throughout the Roman Empire and causing tremendous oppression over them. And he's saying, he's anticipating the questions that they're asking, how should we live in the midst of a culture and popular opinion and social media thoughts and ideas and ideologies that are radically counter to their Lifestyle. And so what Peter does is he basically gives them a code of conduct. It's, and it's more fascinating to me the more I read it over and over again. I'm just like, man, this is exactly what Peter's doing. He's saying, I'm going to give you a code of conduct. Here's, here's some lifestyle um, ideas for you to live into, tangible ways to adjust your life so it lives like this. Now, I mean, the obvious things that kind of immediately come to my mind is what Peter does not say. He doesn't say take up a sword and figure out ways that you can develop militias to kill oppressive government. <laughs> he doesn't say figure out some sort of social media campaign to slaughter the enemies, at least verbally. None of that. Am, am I anti-political involvement? No, go for it. Be politically involved. But the point that I'd make is this. Peter's instruction, Peter's, what I would describe as inspired instruction from the Holy Spirit is threefold. And we just read it. I'll read it again. He basically gives them a moral code. He says, here's, here's, how, here's how I want you to live. Pray, love, and serve. 
It's way more than that. It's, I mean, there's way more elements of conduct that a Christian is invited to live, but it's not less than that. In fact, I would almost even say these are the building blocks. Uh, or to put it another way, what does a Christian look like? How should a Christian conduct themselves? What should a Christian look like in modern-day westernized America or even in modern-day Ukraine or modern-day Russia or wherever else you want to figure out on planet Earth? How should a Christian live? This is what's beautiful about the Bible is it's universal. It literally covers all cultures, all ethnicities, all time. These are eternal truths. Pray, love, and serve. But today I just want to focus on pray. And we'll get to the other two next week, all right? But I want to really today just focus on the subject of prayer. And I think there's a reason for that because what I don't want is I don't want to assume that we all understand or know what the idea of pray is. Again, I think it's really easy for us. Again, each one of us, when we come to gather as a church community, we all bring various definitions and ideas and thoughts and ideological constructs into our understanding of the Bible. So we can come in a gathering like this, and when the preacher, whoever says, hey, we're going to pray, praying is important, we bring into this context certain ideas of what praying means. And what I want to try to do as best as I can, because I'm, I'm a Bible teacher, my, my job is to try to reorient our thinking, our definitions, our understandings, um, our catalog of ideas, to, to bring them in sync with how the scripture would bring them forth. And so what I want to try to do today is just as best as I can, help us to think in a biblical perspective of what praying is. And then I want to end with just some, or we'll, we'll take a look at some problems, I think, that go along with that. In fact, it's, these are my problems that I'm, I'm bringing up that necessarily. They're, they're, Peter anticipates that there are problems that we'll face that will cause prayer to be challenging. Um, and then I want to just end on a really practical note and give you some very practical th- steps and thoughts that hopefully will help all of us to really think deeply and carefully about what praying is all about. So with that being said, my hope would be that this would be helpful to all of us wherever we're at in our journey with understanding who Jesus is and what God is inviting us into. So with that being said, I'm going to jump right in and really kind of ask the bigger question, and then we'll kind of unpack one by one as we go through. Number one, what is prayer? What is prayer? And uh, you, it's interesting to me that the, the Bible actually does not have a unified definition of prayer. Seems kind of interesting. But again, if you think of the Bible as a dictionary or as an encyclopedia, then you're going to be horribly disappointed. The Bible is not a dictionary, nor is it an encyclopedia. Uh, the, the Bible anticipates. You already know what prayer is. And so what you'll find throughout the Bible is you'll find multiple exhortations to pray. Like, you know, for example, the Psalms are filled with pray to the Lord. Um, you'll see multiple examples of people praying. Like filled. I don't even know how many. Like dozens, if not hundreds of people crying out to God, praying to God. You'll see multiple examples of actual prayers to be prayed. But you will not find an actual definition of, hey, here's what prayer is. Prayer is, and then dot, 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 give you a quotation of what prayer is, uh, at least in a unified sense. But what you do have are examples that you can kind of bring together, piece together. And I think one of the greatest examples of that is in the Lord's Prayer, what we commonly call the uh, Our Father. This is the prayer that Jesus uh, was asked by his disciples. Hey, uh, can you teach us how to pray? Which I think in and of itself is fascinating because they notice something about Jesus. I mean, Jesus is doing miracles. Jesus is feeding people. There's a lot of spectacular things that Jesus is doing. But the one thing the disciples ask him, hey, teach us how to pray. I mean, they, I, if it was me, I'd be like, teach us how to do that whole like feed 5,000 people thing. That'd be awesome. Teach us how to heal the leper thing. That's pretty cool too. Um, but what they want to know is how do you pray? 
What does that look like for you? So there's something about Jesus's involvement or interaction with God that was so captivating that his own disciples were so intrigued by it, they actually asked him that specific. And maybe they did ask him about the miracle stuff and all that. But what were recorded for us in the life that was significant enough to be recorded for us was the whole prayer thing. So they asked Jesus how to pray. And again, you guys are probably, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the Our Father, our Father who are, is in heaven, holy is your name. He goes on through this whole prayer and procession. So most scholars believe that what Jesus is giving them is not only a prayer to be prayed, but also a model prayer to, to model other prayers around. And so with that being said, um, I don't know who created this like nice little acronym, probably some megachurch pastor at some point throughout history. So I'm just lifting it straight from whoever this person was, it's an anonymous per- person. And because I know some of you guys woke up this morning, like, man, I sure hope Pastor Brian gives me an acronym. Well, you're welcome, because here it is, pray. So I think the best way of just thinking about what prayer is, is this acronym, pray. And I'll go through each one, one by one. But in a lot of ways, you can see these exact same things modeled in Jesus's prayer. They are our Father. So, for example, you can begin with the idea of pray, praise, praise, P for praise. The idea of basically uh, thanking God, adoring God, worshiping God, lifting up God's name. Uh, prayer involves that. Jesus starts this model prayer in which he says, Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. This is a way of adoration. It's a way of praising uh, the, the, the one to whom all praises is worthy. So, first movement is the idea of praise. The second is Prayer involves repentance, involves actually crying out to God, confessing. This could be confession of sin. This could be confession of guilt, shame, regret, cycles. This can be all forms of confessions that we just find ourselves needing to throw out before God. It could be moments where we just, uh, we repent, we turn to God. Repentance has oftentimes been one of those words, I've said this so many times before, but it's one of those words that oftentimes I think uh, gets weaponized by really angry frustrated preachers because they want you to do something. So they whip out the old repent word to cast guilt and shame upon you to get you to do something. And I think that's really unfortunate because the word repentance is absolutely beautiful word throughout the Bible. It just simply means to change one's mind, to turn one's course of action or direction. And the idea of repentance is every single time we come to God, prayer, it involves, and we'll get to this in the practical step, but it involves a reshifting, a reshaping of our mind and our understanding of who God is uh, from what we think about God to be to what God truly is. In fact, if you want to think of it this way, God is one of the greatest iconoclasts of all time. God loves tearing down idols that we craft of him. God made human beings in his likeness, in his image. Human beings are consistently making God into our likeness. That's a problem. Because God is not like me. God is not like you. And you should be grateful for that. But the problem is we have this default nature where we're constantly trying to make God recraft him into our likeness and our image. And the problem with that is, is that we will always, if, you, if your God always agrees with you, you, you can be certain you got a false God. It's a false God. The the true God of glory, when he shows up, when he reveals himself, there will be, there ought to be moments where it's like, oh my gosh, my life was so radically out of sync with him and his ways. I have only one, or actually two responses. One, to completely ignore it and keep going on about my business, doing what I want to do, how I want, and that will bring about repercussions. Or I can stop in my tracks 
in utter amazement of who he is and of his kindness and his goodness, because Scripture is pretty clear that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not that God's this angry drill sergeant forcing you into some form of conversion. It's that God is filled with love for you. He's inviting you to reshape, reorient your understanding, the narrative that you have about who God is around who he is. And then that leads us to repentance, the way it says here. The third thing is the idea of asking. So prayer does involve petition, you know, the idea of asking God for something. In fact, the very word prayer itself um, has sort of baked into its definition, its actual original meaning, this idea of asking or imploring uh, something from somebody in this context. That's why you, you know, old English, you can say, I pray you, you know, whatever. You know, the idea is like, I'm asking you of something. And that word gets used in the context of God's petition, asking God for something. And then the third thing is yielding, yielding to God. This is what I would say makes prayer Christian, as opposed to just um, a tool that I'm using to somehow manipulate or move or make God do something. That's, first of all, a myth. That that's not what prayer is about. Prayer is about God reshaping our desires, our understanding, our longings around who he, hit, around who he, he is and what he intends for our lives. And this is where the idea of yielding comes in. Where at the end of the day, prayer is about me coming into that place of saying, God, here's who you are. Here's how you've revealed yourself to be. And I surrender all that I am to you. I surrender those aches and pains and the deepest soul part of who I am. I surrender those longings as good and as pure and as uh, glorious as they may be. I surrender those things to you. Because you alone are good. You alone are the treasure I'm seeking for. Uh, it's, a, it's a way of creating within our heart a single focus. What happens when we find ourselves consistently multitasking, consistently spread about? Uh, it's just confusion, chaos, stress, anxiety. Uh, we don't know which end is up. Where does peace oftentimes come from? Peace oftentimes is found by the consolidation of all of these desires into one unified, overarching desire. Does that make sense? So to the degree that I'm able to look at God and say, God, you alone are my deepest longing, greatest longing that I want you to be. To, to the degree that begins to happen, then peace will oftentimes be elusive, and chaos will basically be what we live in. But as we begin to yield ourselves to the single reality of who God is, then we find and discover the peace that he offers to us. So number one, what is prayer? I spent way too long on that, longer than I anticipated. I'm going to move on to the next one. All right, let's talk a little bit about the problems of prayer. And this is what Peter anticipates. So I want to jump right into the text and take a look at some of the things that Peter himself says. He says, uh, listen to how he describes it this way. Again, verse 7, he says, Therefore, be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. Now, some of your translations might vary on this a little bit, uh, but there's actually two words that are essential for understanding, I think, what Peter's describing here. In fact, um, some of your translations will definitely vary in these two words, but in short, they're basically these two words. Uh, Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Self-controlled and sober-minded. And they get kind of used uh, interchangeably uh, in some cases throughout the New Testament. So the big idea that I think Peter's suggesting here is avoid being distracted. So that's one thing. Avoid being distracted. But number two, be alert. So avoid being distracted. uh, And then secondly, be alert. So sober-minded, the word that he uses there, is just kind of a word of basically saying, uh, don't don't let your mind be in your... um, your abilities to gauge things to be clouded. 
This is the idea. So, for example, uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 6, he says this, Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So this is Paul's advice or admonition to this guy, Titus. He says, encourage the young guys that are in the church community. Be self-controlled. This is the idea of being sober-minded or being alert. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6, he says, let us sleep. Let us not sleep, sorry. <laughs> Don't wake up, wake up right now. Let us not sleep, um, as do others, but let us keep awake and be sober. So the word sober that he uses there is the same word that gets used, sober-minded. Um, the suggestion here is, look, it'd be easy by default to just sink into a slumber. And in some ways, if you want a modern-day movie example of this, it's like, take the red pill. Have a red pill moment, right? The Matrix. Some of you are just like, what in the world is he saying? All right, red pill moment. Take the red pill. Awaken your mind to the reality that's around you. Otherwise, you can just take the blue pill, and you will just sink back into the same stupor that everybody else is in. I think this is his way of basically saying, wake in your mind. Be alert. Be aware of what's around you. And as you do that, you will begin to be aware of God's presence. To the degree that I think we're not aware that we're asleep and that we're not alert, um, we find ourselves simply distracted. Listen to a couple other things, and I'll move on to the next one. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. He says, since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Here's another admonition. Be sober. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Again, back into the epistle that we're reading right now, the letter that he's reading right now. He begins the entire book by saying this. Being sober-minded, let your hope fully be on the grace so that will, be, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. His whole admonition here again as well. Be aware of the fact that one of these days, dear brothers and sisters, that are living in a society that personal opinion of you is very low uh, and that the culture and the government around you really does not either care about you or does not like you or maybe even worse, they disdain you. He says, be sober-minded. Put your hope fully in the grace that will one day come. That's where your anchor ought to be. First uh, Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he ends with this little admonition. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because it goes on to say, your adversary, Caesar, crawls about like a running lion. Nope. <laughs> your adversary, the devil. <laughs> we would immediately think, well, oh my gosh, the adversary is a physical persona who's ruling out of a censor empire. He says, no, 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 it's the devil. There's, there's a darker, deeper force that is working for your demise and your destruction he says therefore be sober be aware be alert and he's basically using the same words here so i kind of created some thoughts and i don't have them written up here so just listen what i was thinking through this distraction leads to prayerlessness distraction distractedness um any any of you guys ever deal with distractedness anybody Every single one of you should have raised your hand right now, but most of you didn't. But the, I get the idea. All of us, all of us, we, we live our lives in this, from one distraction to the next. Like you wake up in the morning and you're just automatically distracted. You're like, oh my gosh, I was just sleeping. I got distracted from sleep. Like, wait a minute, this guy's in a, doing a sermon here right now. I just got distracted because I just got another ping on my cell phone. Whatever. We live in a world of distraction. In fact, some of the modern uh, technological studies of social media uh, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, whatever. All the way these, the, uh, literally the business model of these companies, do you know, are built to disrupt your day. That's how they are made. And some of us, we buy into that. We're like, oh, I'm going to set every notification on the app that I just downloaded. Do not do that. 
You're playing into their business model. You will live, you will be subject to all of their interruptions and disruptions. You will not be productive. That's literally what the latest advances of research are pointing us towards. Not only will you not be productive, you will be filled with anxiety and loneliness. So maybe some of you, maybe some of us, we need to take a hard look and ask, why is my anxiety off the charts? It may have something to do with the fact of the continual distractions that you are giving yourself over towards through social media. And that's, that's, not my, that's not my input or suggestion. This is literally the latest studies from every field that's doing the work on this stuff. They're designed to bring distraction. And I would suggest to you that as we are distracted through these designed mechanisms to disrupt your day, to play upon your desires, to pull you into another world, what will happen is we will no longer be prayerful. And that's a problem. That's a problem. It's a problem because it puts us out of sync with the very uh, roles that Peter is calling Christians to live into. And when we become prayerless, I think what ends up happening is we become disconnected from God. When we become disconnected from God, his plans, his purposes, what happens is we are far more easy to fall prey to cycles of guilt, shame, regret, which then lead to this constant anxiety of like, where am I? Who am I connected to? Where are my people? Who loves me? Does anybody care about me? Do I even, does anybody even know that I really even exist? Does my existence even matter? We find ourselves going back into these cycles of just meaninglessness, purposefullessness. All of these things begin to play into our very existence. And they're all tied together, surprisingly. So, the idea of a distraction is something that we, more so than ever, are subject to. And I think this is exactly what Peter's saying. He's saying, brothers and sisters, be careful. As you are living in society that doesn't like you, in a government that doesn't support you, more than ever, avoid these distractions and be alert so that you may pray. So that you may pray. If you want a definition for distraction, I think it has it up on there. You can read it. It's all great. I want to jump on now to the very last uh, quote before I move into the very, very last point. And it's uh, from C.S. Lewis. Some of you guys are familiar with his book called Screwtape Letters. If you've never read it, I would highly recommend reading it. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, so just bear with me. Hopefully it's entertaining enough that, and powerful enough that it will just capture your attention. But if uh, you are unfamiliar with Screwtape Letters, I've got to give you a little bit of a backstory because it might come across a little bit confusing. So Screwtape is kind of a senior demon. <laughs> Some of you are like, wait, what? Screwtape is a senior demon writing to a, a, a lesser demon, right? So their job by, you know, the king of demons, Satan, their job is, and again, C.S. Lewis is pretty colorful in his writing, and their job was to basically uh, bring temptation to their case work, their case study, right? The, the, their case that they were assigned to, right? So you guys following that so far? So demon has a case. The case is a Christian that he's working for, or that, that's supposed to be working for him. And his sole objective in life, all right, as a demon, throughout his demon life, is to tempt Christian to pull away from engagement with God. It, so that, that, that's kind of their, their game plan. So you guys following so far? Anybody confused? Good. All right, I'm going to just read it, so just listen to it. It's really powerful. Again, he's talking about the subject of distractions. Here's what he said. You will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wandering attention. You will no longer need a good book, 
which he really likes, to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. You can make him waste his time, not only in conversation, which he enjoys, with uh, not waste them not only in conversation he enjoys with people whom he likes, but conversations with those he cares nothing about on subjects that bore him. I call that Facebook. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. You can keep him up late at night, not with something he particularly enjoys, but with starting with staring at a dead fire in a cold room. All the healthy and outgoing activities which we want him to avoid can be inhibited. What are the things that he's supposed to be doing? Praying, seeking God. And what demon A is basically saying is that, look, let's do everything we can to keep him distracted so he's not able to do the things that the enemy, who's the enemy? God, right, good, you guys are paying attention. So he won't do anything that the enemy wants him to do, which is pray and be engaged and have relationship and connection with who God is. And he's saying, let's do everything we can to keep him from what the enemy wants him to do. He says, uh, goes, uh, now, I now see that I spent, oh, sorry, going to go back. All the healthy and outgoing activities, which we want him to avoid, can be inhibited. So that at last, he may say, as one of his own patients said on his arrival down here, hell, uh, I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I like. The Christians describe the enemy, devil, as the one without whom nothing is strong. And yet, nothing is very strong. Strong enough to steal away a man's best years. Not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind. Gosh, that's so heavy. Dreary flickering. Next time you're doom scrolling, just get that phrase in your head. Dreary flickering of the mind. What are you doing right now? I don't know. It's just a dreary flickering of my mind. Things are just like, just flickering. That's what's happening to me right now. I'm just like scrolling, dreary flickering of the mind. Okay, it goes on. You will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report some spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is a gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle, screw tape. Dang, that is so powerful. And his whole point is distraction. Keep the people distracted. And I would honestly suggest you and I, as Westerners, living in the beautiful California coastal region, you and I more than ever are right in the crosshairs of all of this, which puts us at a very heightened level. The question is, how sober-minded and alert are we? Or are we just playing into it? I think one of the best ways to ask the question is, is how prayerful are we? And if, again, this is, this is I, I say this all the time, this is not a moment for you to like hang your head in guilt and shame and be like, ah, that's me, I'm not doing it enough. No, 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 my hope today is help all of us. 
to at least, number one, identify the challenges that we face. In identifying those challenges, be able to kind of recraft a way around those things and then to reestablish a new outpost of prayer in our lives that will help us to become the people that God ultimately wants us to be. And I'm going to finish with some just really practical things. And the last thing is just this idea of really focusing on the practice of prayer. And I want to use the word practice carefully, the idea that this is really, truly a practice. It's, it's a regular thing that we just we implement into our lives in the same way that you might practice daily going for a walk or practice driving to work or practice brushing your teeth or practice eating a meal at a certain time of the day or practice your daily ritual of making coffee or practice whatever you fill in the blank practice working the big idea is it's a practice think of it as a daily habit or a practice that we implement in our lives that then does something to our soul over the long term that's the big idea that I want for us to really drive home. And I want to finish with some just final thoughts to think about. So I was just thinking about this. And again, most of this is just kind of my own personal input or thought on this, uh, this last little point. And things that I have found helpful for me, uh, hopefully they will be helpful for you. So number one, in terms of peace, we'll kind of alliterate this whole thing. So number one, uh, I think what you need is a place. A place. Secondly, a perspective. Do we have a slide for this, by the way? No, we don't have a slide for this. Bummer, sorry. All right, so just listen carefully. A place, a perspective, and prayers. So a place, number one, we'll start with that. Think of this as a, a chair or a location in your house. It might be your bed. It might be your car as you're driving to work. Something that is a regular cadence in your life that you just, again, for some it might be like getting out in the water, surfing in the morning. Like That's your time where you're just going to like focus your mind, your thought, your attention upon God. For some it might be you know making the daily ritual of coffee, like where you're tuning your heart and your mind to just concentrate and consider who God is and what God is like. Um, but think about, think about some form, some regular place, some sacred space. Again, I use that word sacred, not in any weird way, but just it's a repeated regular space that you said, this is a spot that I will come to and just find a sense of engagement, conversation, relationship with God. Again, it could, you could have, I mean, like what I do is I have an office and I have a chair and I have a rug. So sometimes it, it involves me as I'm making my cup of coffee in the morning, that routine or that ritual. Sometimes it involves me sitting in my chair and just closing my eyes or uh, trying to find myself undistracted or trying to uh, deal with those distractions so my mind is not uh, constantly running or racing. Sometimes it's just sitting on the rug in my room, um, just just considering who God is. Uh, but the big idea, first of all, is, is having a place. Again, some of you might be like going for a regular hike on the mountain, something like that. Find some regular place that that will become part of the cadence of your life. The second thing is perspective. And this is really essential. Think of this as reorienting and renewing your heart and your mind about who God is. Again, I mentioned this a little bit earlier. But if you think of God primarily as a really angry landlord and you're a squatter on his property, how often and frequently will you go to God and worship him? Hardly ever. If you think of God as Daddy Warbucks or some sort of ancient sage Santa Claus, how often will you go to him? I guarantee you will only go to him when you sense the deepest need of things in your life. You'll just go to him for that because that's who God is. God is Santa. I go to him. Or if you think of God as, you know, someone once described years ago, as like this cosmic pinata that you just whack every once in a while, the goodies come down. You will only go to him when you have need of something. If you think of God as, as an angry, you know, drill sergeant, you'll likely never go to him. If you think of God as constantly disappointed and disapproving in you, you will never go to him, ever. 
you think of God the way that God wants to be thought of, again, remember, God is an iconoclast. God crushes idols. Let him crush your idols. It's the greatest freedom that God could ever bring to you. Let him crush the idols that you have crafted about who God is in your life. And that will lead to freedom. God, Jesus speaks of the Father. He says, when you go to God, say, our Father, who's in heaven. He is a daddy who loves you. Again, I realize for some, the idea of dad, I always have to say this, has baggage. This is where it's consistently essential to recraft, reorient your mind as to what does Jesus mean by God is a father. Jesus consistently says, if you see me, you see the father. So if you need help reframing, reorienting your understanding of what God the father looks like, just look at Jesus. He's constantly healing people. He's constantly turning towards people that are in need. He's constantly just coming into people's lives and brokenness and chaos and bringing order and peace. This is what God the Father is like. He loves us as people. He invites us to him. So number one, have a place. Number two, reorient, reshape your perspective. I think this comes through, you know, for sure, scripture reading. This is why I think reading scripture is important and essential. Find a good app if you have a hard time actually reading a hard copy of a Bible. Find an app that it can read it to you on a regular basis. Um, I mean, there's, there's, there's more information, more content avail- available than ever before um, to reorient your mind as to who God is by letting the scripture refresh, renew your understanding who this is, who, who this God is. Uh, if you also need more help, I know for me sometimes it's like uh, a worship song. Like there's sometimes for me, nothing more quickly brings me into a place of just like, God, you're good, than listen to a worship song. Um, just something that's going to be in that moment powerful for me. And that helps me quickly reshape, reorient my perspective about who God is. Lastly, and I'll finish with this, is the idea of prayers. Prayers. Um, I like to think about praying. I heard someone describe it this way. This is not my creative you know, way of thinking of this, someone had uh, mentioned this, and I'll just bring it to you guys. You're welcome. Um, someone once described prayer as uh, most modern Western evangelicals think of prayer as like off-roading versus driving a car around a track. So off-roading is taking a car off-road, just going anywhere. The, it's open field. Do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. Do as many donuts as you want. It's just open field. There's no rules, no regulations whatsoever uh, versus a racetrack, going around a track over and over and over and over again, which evangelicals look at that and it's like, that's like vain repetition. That's horrible. That's boring. I hate boring. I want something spectacular and awesome. I want an off-road. Problem is, okay, and, and, and that language I think was helpful for me to think about is that many modern Western evangelicals, in terms of thinking about prayer exclusively as an off-road track, there's times in my life where I don't know where to begin. So guess what I do when I don't know how to do something? I just don't do it. You guys ever felt like that? He was like, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I don't, I, I can't even think of what God, I'm not even sure. Maybe God might be angry at me today. I don't know. And I don't even know where to begin. And if the aim of prayer is to just go off road and go crazy and do donuts somewhere out in some wilderness experience, then I don't even know where to begin. So I'm not going to pray. Versus what he describes as the way the historic Christian church has always prayed, always prayed. Even in the book of Acts, they prayed. For example, in the book of Acts, it says, uh, in the early church, they were given to the prayers. The definite article is before the word prayers. The prayers. What prayers? They were the Christians. When they gathered to pray, were they praying prayers that were just kind of like spontaneous and on the spot and like, you know, off-road prayers? Probably. But they were also praying the 
prayers? What were the prayers? Probably the Shema. Probably prayers that they'd been praying for since they were like little kids. Just the prayers. Do you know that the church has always had a catalog of the prayers? I mean, the Psalms are the prayers. And I think oftentimes we are trained to think prayer should always be spontaneous and innovative and exciting and amazing and powerful and off-road experience. And I think, I think we actually do ourselves a disservice by exclusively thinking of prayer in that term. Maybe if we start, and here's what I've tried to do personally. I've tried to implement, first and foremost, my prayer times have to do with the prayers, the prayers, saying the ancient prayers. And I have a handful that I kind of cycle through month by month and season by season. But I begin, as I sit down, I just begin by saying the prayers. The prayers sometimes might be the Lord's Prayer, which oftentimes involves that. I just pray the Lord's Prayer. Um, and I actually have, if you guys, in case you guys are interested or want this, I actually printed out some stuff. These are just prayers that, that I personally am going through right now. These are of help to you. They kind of printed out weird. So um, you're more than welcome to pick one up. Um, I'm happy to give these to you guys. Um, but on here, what I have written down are prayers that are from the Bible. Prayers that are from the Bible, like, for example, the Lord's Prayer, and then the Prayer of Jesus, uh, which is from 1 Corinthians. Uh, Again, I'll reference this. You can just take a look at it later. And also prayers of the church. The church has a huge catalog of prayers to draw from. I'll give you two examples. Number one is what's called the uh, Trisagion. Um, I didn't look at this a second time. Um, It literally means thrice holy. It's a very, very, very ancient prayer. That's been said since probably around 300 A.D. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of years. Thousands and thousands of Christians had said this prayer. And again, many of us, I realize, as Western evangelicals, we're like, I've never even heard of that. Right. That's, I, I'm saying I'm, I'm part of this, this milieu that we have tried to distance ourselves from tradition or history. And I think we're the worst off for it, to be honest with you. I think part of the reclamation the healing, the restoration, the reorientation comes from tapping into the ancient roots that we've been given and say, that's my church. 2,000 years of it on every continent, through every ethnicity, that's my church. Those are my prayers. Those are my songs that have been given to me, and I want access to them. And the beautiful thing is that, especially with the internet more than ever, we have access to all of these things. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a prayer that I've been praying often on a regular basis. It's been really helpful for me. It's just simply called the Jesus Prayer. Some of you are, you've heard of it, and it's really simple. It just goes like this. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It actually comes straight out of the book of Luke chapter 18. And it's, it's a prayer. I think it's Zacchaeus. Uh, he says, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, but the point that I would make is, this, is that Christians throughout history have prayed these prayers. As, think of it as a racetrack. They sit down. They just begin to pray. Lord Jesus. Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Say it again. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord. And when I find by third, fourth time around, I begin to riff on that. I'm like, Lord, you're king. Now I'm going off-roading. You know what I'm doing now? I'm on the track, and now I'm going to I'm edging off the track. If it was like a guitar solo, it's like moving from rhythm guitar into like, now I'm like freestyling. Now I'm going Jimmy Page style. Now I'm beginning to enter into a riff. Lord Jesus, the name above all names. The name before whom every created thing will bow before you. That Jesus. 
And as I begin to do that, now I begin to think of all my problems and challenges and hardships and insecurities and anxieties, griefs, pains, all of that in light of King Jesus. So I'm done. Went over. But I want to just finish with that for you to just chew on and think about. Be sober-minded and alert so that you pray. Be aware of every form of distraction that will come in and pull you away from what God intends for you. And enter into maybe hopefully, my hope would be a new chapter in your life of engaging with God. In fact, the way I want to finish right now is I want for us just to all pray, uh, stand up and I want, to, I want to pray over us. Is that, is that cool, Josh? Do you mind if I just we for, forego a song? Is that cool? I want, to, I want to pray. I want to invite you guys into just a practice, and I'll, we'll be done, I promise. So I want to invite you guys to do is just in this moment, you know, if you want, you can close your eyes and keep your eyes open. And again, this is one of those beautiful things that the, the Scripture does not. In fact, the whole idea of closing your eyes, I'm not even exactly sure where that comes from. There are passages that describe when I lift up my eyes from whom my help comes from. There's an indication that people actually had their eyes open when they prayed. So, I, you know, again, the, the point is, is that to remove... Uh, anything that's going to distract you from who God is. So whatever that looks like for you, if you need to close your eyes, you want to keep them open, you want to look at the light, I don't really care. It doesn't really matter. It's, again, it's not magic. It's not magic. God is not a magician. He's your father, and he loves you, and he's for you. And he demonstrated his love for you, and that he sends Jesus into this world to take upon himself our guilt, our shame, our brokenness, our defilement, and to give us new life. This is how much God the Father is calling you. So let's just close our eyes and just consider who God is right now. Just pause to reflect upon who he is. And, and right now we realize, obviously, we, we, have a, we have a place. We have a space. We're here right now. We're at church. And so, God, the next thought that we just consider is we repent. We turn from ways of thinking about you that are distortions, that are maybe our even projections. We've projected our desires upon what we think you should be like. And, and that is a recipe for setting us up for total disappointment. So God, we repent from false ideas, false notions, false ideologies, false idolatries. We repent and turn from sin and ways of thinking that are just broken and out of sync and out of order with who you are and how you've created the world to be. And God, we adore you. We move into just the adoration. We just say thank you for who you are and what you're up to and what you're inviting us into. And God, finally, we just yield. Right now, guys, wherever you're at, wherever you're at in this journey, maybe some of you are here, you've been a Christian for a long time. And prayer has just been something that's not been happening for whatever reason. Again, please don't go down the guilt-shame cycle. It's not helpful, and it's not the heart of God. But it is helpful to just acknowledge, yes, I've not been down that path. But come back and return. For some of you, maybe you're not even Christians. You're just, a parent dragged you to church. Like, God, wherever people are at today, thank you for assembling us here. You love all human beings. You invite all human beings to trust you. 
And God, we just say to you in closing, we yield ourselves, our ways, our lives, our expectations, our hopes, and our dreams to your ways. And we say with 2,000 years of history and saints and Christians over every continent of planet Earth, throughout every ethnicity, bearing every skin color, speaking every language this planet has ever put forth, we say the prayer that belongs to your collective people. And we ask, God, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come and may your will be done on the central coast as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come and may your will be done in this church, this community, as it is in heaven. And may your will and may your kingdom come in our lives as it is in heaven. And we yield ourselves to you, Lord. So as we scatter now right now, God, we go forth reminding ourselves it's not by our power. We don't do anything to somehow merit your love. We do everything because we know that we're loved. So empower us to walk in that way. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Listen, um, lastly, before you guys leave, um, if you are, as it was mentioned earlier, if you're new here, if you've been around the church for any length of time, and you're still trying to figure out, like, what's Calvary about? How do I get involved? You know, uh, I would love to meet you. My wife and I are actually going to be in the next room over there. We're going to be doing the Welcome to Calvary Slow. It's the way for us to get, it's literally 25 minutes of just, you know, hearing a little bit about our story, our history, our theology, how we think about God and church and life and all the above, and our mission, like what we sense God is calling us as a community into. And then lastly, again, as was mentioned earlier, we'd love to see you guys tonight at the little beach get-together, and it should be pretty awesome. We should have great weather. So God bless you guys. Have a great week. And if Listen, if you have any needs for anything that's going on in your life, I'm just going to throw this out. I'm going to have some people off to the side over here. They'll be available right now, making their way over there to just pray for you. If you have anything that's going on in your life, you need prayer, please don't leave without just having someone pray for you or pray over you. And you might even be someone that says, I don't have a whole lot of faith. That's okay. Let the faith of somebody else be what carries you through. That's how the church works, guys. You're, you're, not, you're, you're not independent. You belong to a a corporate body that has spanned a very lengthy period of time and that will span into eternity future. So God bless you guys. Have a great week. Bye.